All right, everyone. Welcome to the In the Open podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Selmer. We've also got my other hosts, Eric Sir and uh, Gabe Walsh with us. So today we're going to talk about the basics of becoming a hunter. We're going to just call it Hunter 101. So you, if you are like a, someone that's just getting into hunting, uh, it'd be a good one for you. Or if you're trying to mentor someone, it'd be a good one for you. Uh, but first, we got a couple hunting-related stories we want to get into. So uh, let you guys take it off. I'll start out for us. Uh, these stories don't have anything to do with mentoring hunters, but they're just kind of what's happening right now, um, especially here in Montana. Uh, so our first one takes place on the 17th of February, and on the 17th, the 82nd wolf of this winter was killed in Region 3 here in Montana. And if you don't know where Region 3 is, it's south-central Montana. And importantly for this article especially, it borders Yellowstone National Park. And so in years past, uh, regulation just changed recently with the new um, legislative session and with our new governor. Um, in years past, up until this year, regions bordering the park had a um, quota of three wolves. Um, so there's, I'm, I believe, three regions uh, of region three, three parts of region three, three districts that uh, border Yellowstone. And so three wolves, I think, per district or three wolves in the region. So that'd either be nine wolves total or three wolves could be killed. And so obviously this year with regulation change, we've already hit 82 wolves in this region. And on top of that, uh, 19 of these wolves were confirmed wolves from a pack that uh, lives in Yellowstone National Park, but kind of uh, runs the boundary and can sometimes come out. And so big argument here is that uh, the killing of these wolves is actually, with all the wolves that were killed, that's 17% of the Yellowstone National Park uh, population. And so it's kind of gone into, there's no, um, so the hunting in the region was halted on the 17th. So you can no longer shoot wolves, you can no longer trap wolves. So one of the um, variables here is that even though you can't kill any more wolves, uh, there's still trapping equipment out there that needs to be um, collected. So more wolves could die um, before all the trapping equipment is taken out. What I thought was and, interesting about this, sorry to inter interrupt you. You're good. It almost seemed like Yellowstone National Park they had like they wanted to have like a claim on the wolves like these are mm -hmm. yellowstone's wolves when this is montana idaho wyoming's wolves and like they are fair game when they leave the park and uh they i feel like they have like a uh, value in yellowstone for like tourists and stuff and that's why they are wanting to really place some of these protections on or like shorten the season a little bit you know what i mean not really place protections. I misworded that, but. And that's kind of the argument right now is that these wolves are worth more um, to the park. Uh, but wolves do a lot of damage here in Montana. They do a lot of damage in Idaho and Wyoming to the, you know, the civilians, the farmers there who lose livestock. They, they do a lot of damage and that ends up costing the government who pays out. Um, so what's the weighted benefit here? Um, but the, ma the main um, problem that's arising that this article is touching on 
uh, what they deem a problem is that it pretty much wiped out this wolf pack that uh, runs the northern boundary of Yellowstone. Um, and so that's just kind of, we're going into, there's going to be a lot of discussion uh, throughout the rest of this year as well as into um, next year on if they're going to go change these regulations in Region 3 um, to try to protect these Yellowstone wolves. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, I don't know if they're going to end up redistricting down there and putting like a buffer zone, um, say like 20 miles from the border um, along the whole border is not huntable for wolves, something of that sort. Um, but there's a lot of elk hunters who hunt the Yellowstone border. There's some uh, good districts back there that are hard to access, but have a lot of elk. Um, so if we let those wolf packs grow and they're not hunted at all, um, it could really have an effect on, on the elk population back there. There's buffalo back there. Um, and most of the, this, this area is a backcountry district. So it's 15 miles in uh, on trails. Not you, you can't drive any of it. You can't. You have to walk it or be on horseback. So um, it's kind of untouched. And so if we don't have any um, control over the wolves back there, um, it could kind of blossom into a, like an uncontrollable pack that just ravages the, the uh, wildlife back there. So it's an interesting topic, uh, an article that's going to kind of um, go into the future. We don't really know what's going to happen um, as far as uh, regulation-wise if it's going to change. But right now, that's what's happening in Montana. A lot of wolves, the, the quota for this year is 81, and we've had 82 wolves killed in that district. So, Are you guys familiar with uh, predator pits? doesn't sound familiar so i can't like say a, i am it's like a biology term but uh it's basically i have it pulled up here i'm just going to kind of read it it's a uh, predator pits are like large regions of prime wildlife habitat um that are really scarce for ungulates and uh they weren't very common They're like when we eradicated wolves and bears and stuff but now that they're becoming the populations are increasing they're becoming more and more so they just all, there's a lot of predators that are just wiping out the ungulate population uh, and the herbivores are decreasing vegetation to thrive. It's very complex, but I could see one of those situations happening if, uh, if things aren't handled correctly. And, I mean, they're happening all over the state. There's I mean, even where, where we hunt, where hunt for sure. Yeah, and it's, it's something that needs to be addressed because... It's it's not good for the ecosystem to have too many predators, um, especially of apex variety like wolves, which aren't hunted by anything else uh, other than humans. So if we don't hunt them, then they're they're in charge of their own population. It's going to grow to a point where then there's no the wolves will kill all the coyotes, they'll kill all the deer, they'll kill the elk, they'll push everything out. And then you won't find bears in there either, or anything. And then with the carrying capacity, like uh, the elk population goes down, and then the wolves are eventually going to go down, and then there's going to be rises and falls. But uh, it's it's natural, but there definitely needs to be predator management. And unfortunately, the that's kind of the gateway in for the anti-hunting community is mm -hmm. uh, to ban predator hunting. Well, and the unfortunate thing about this, these 82 wolves uh, that probably wasn't foreseen by Gianforte uh, was now they're there's a push from the anti-hunting community to reintroduce the wolves onto the endangered species list because of 
80 these wolves killed in this district, which is absolutely absurd. Um, but it's just as as hunters and conservationists, we have to keep in mind that obviously we all uh, want what's best for the ecosystem, but the anti-hunting community is going to take any of these situations where there's maybe an over-harvest of these predators and try to use it to make it hunting illegal on these predators. And that, uh, as conservationists, we need to do our best to um, keep, keep things in a way where the people in the anti-hunting community have nothing to really complain about. Um, when you're over-harvesting, then it gives them a front to start working for, you know, reintroducing these the endangered species list. Well, for sure. And it's not like the goal of, you know, hey, the, the wolf is off the list. It's not like as hunters, our goal is to get him back on the list. We didn't, you know, we don't want have to have extra federal regulations and we do want healthy predator populations. And then, but that's the other unfortunate side of it is, you know, we want to put nature in a box, have boundaries and met, have it meet our standards. You know, animals move. They're not going to say, oh, hey, here's the Yellowstone boundary. I'm just going to make sure I stay just inside this arbitrary line. No, they're going to migrate, move. If population goes up, animals push each other out and they spread. Oh, and one more thing, two more things before we move on to the next story. We don't want to take too much of your time. Um, number one, if 82 wolves are harvested in a district, I don't know if anyone listening has hunted wolves, but it's not easy. No. Wolves are very difficult to hunt. So if 82 wolves are harvested, that means that there is a very strong population to have that many wolves harvested. Um, so obviously the populations are all right. And another thing this kind of points to, which needs to kind of be a discussion is these Yellowstone wolves aren't used to human predators and aren't really as scared of people being in the park and not having any of that interaction. So part of the reason these wolves are getting killed that are from the park is because they don't have a natural fear of humans because 90% of the year humans don't pose a threat when all the wolves who live outside the park have that threat of humans. So they're way harder to hunt probably than those wolves that have less of a fear of humans. So part of the problem is that the park puts in a, you know, a, a situation where these animals don't have a natural fear of humans that they, they really should. And it kind of leads to easier killings of these animals that do roam outside the park boundaries. I, not to keep diving into this, but I did read a article. They were studying the elk behavior within Yellowstone National Park and then outside of the park. And as soon as they left, the like when they were in the park, they were fine. Like humans didn't bug them. As soon as they left the park on, the, on their like migration patterns, instantly into survival mode. So I don't know about that. I'm not trying to hmm. like call you out, but I do think no, that there's a little bit of like uh, intelligence with them there. You know what I mean? They're definitely smart. And I wonder if that has anything to do with for their migration times, is that like during a hunting season? They when... are, for the most part. Okay. Well, so I wonder if the wolves too. have the same thing, um, because they, I'm assuming they just followed the elk mm -hmm. um, as they move out of the park, if they kind of know that they're into that into that system. It's interesting. I mean, we'll never know exactly if the wolves feel that, um, but obviously some of these uh, research projects that Jay was just talking about kind of point to these animals really wising up to where they're, they're at. Um, mm -hmm being inside or outside the bounds for sure especially since you know, animals are very it's very popular for animals to you know take refuge on private land versus public land during season but yeah but to transition to our next story then is about a month in montana 
the Wildlife Commission is proposing changes to the mountain lion hunting season. So under this new proposal by the Montana Fish and Wildlife Commission, 10 to 30% of each hunting district in the state would be reserved for permit holders and the remaining lions would be hunted on a quota with general licenses. So basically, from my understanding of this article, and I'm not much of a mountain lion hunter, so maybe you guys can elaborate more on this if I'm mistaken, but it sounds like usually they have a quota system where they say, much like the wolves, where they say, okay, we're only allowing this number of cats to be shot this year, and once that quota is reached, they shut it down. And from my reading of this article, it sounds like the problem with that kind of system is there's a huge rush to get, you know, I got to get my cat now before the next guy does. And because sometimes they've overran their quotas because so many people get them quickly, or they just have an issue with everyone, like tons of people going out day one and getting their harvest, especially in the Western part of the state where you have a lot more snow. So it's easier to track these cats. So under this new hybrid system, they would have that 10 to 20% would be for permit holders and the rest would be under general licenses. Yeah, I know I've, I've never mountain lion hunted, but I do know that there's specific quotas and once those quotas are reached in that district, they shut it down within 24 to 48 hours. I'm not certain and no more hunting there. I think they shut it down immediately when they hit a quota, but mm -hmm. you have like two days to report your kill. Um, so that's where the kind of time discrepancy comes um, because someone could have shot it on a Saturday and, you know, they're busy kind of dealing with it. They got other stuff going on and then they don't report it till Monday. So they shot the quota mountain line, but it took them two days to get to FWP. So they didn't know that they had hit the quota. And then in that time, a couple more could have been shot or whatever. But it's interesting to think that this is going to, decrease um this is going to change what's already happening because if you're permit hunters as a permit hunter then you know you have a tag so you could wait past the opening of season and still know that you're able to hunt the mountain lion through the whole season exactly um, but if you're still allowing over-the-counter tags at a smaller quota then everyone's still going to go out there and try to get their mountain lion on the first week to try to ensure that they can get it and then as a permit holder, you may just say that you have a better chance of getting, you know, a good, I think they're, are they Toms? Toms, yeah. Uh, a good Tom um, opening weekend, because that's when you're going to have the highest population of mountain lions in the district, in theory, if a lot of them are shot the first weekend, and maybe some migrate in. Um, but your first weekend's still going to be rushed, and you're still going to overblow that quota, and then you're just going to have a few people who can hunt a little longer. It seems like, to me... Um, they sh they would be better off doing if they want to do this like uh, split the mountain lion season into like a couple different seasons like an early season a mid season and a late season or just an early season and a late season um, and do maybe more permits uh, it just seems like um, if you're trying to spread it out over a longer period of time and not have everyone rushing like the first two weekends um, that this regulation change isn't really going to affect that definitely it's a very touchy subject this sounds like especially when you consider with like hound hunters and outfitters and then of course you know just private citizens going out without a guide or anything on their own doing it so it's definitely a very touchy subject it sounds like there's much support for this new system and actually a lot of outcry against this new system well and i can tell you from living in montana um i've hunted i'm i'm 23 now i've hunted since I was 12 with a gun, but before that, I've been going out for years before that even. 
and oh, I've never true. seen a mountain lion in the wild. Like it's and I know exclusively very, hound hunting. You yeah, really can't like, do it without hounds. So the the amount of people who can actually hunt mountain lions is very limited. Like you have to have good hounds, trained hounds. Um, I mean, you got to have like at least five or six of them to be effective. And so there's a very limited amount of the population that can actually do these mountain lion hunts. It is not your everyday citizen. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've, I know one person who I, I'm kind of acquainted with who shot a mountain lion and went out on one of those hunts, but it was, they weren't his dogs. They were either a family friends or a guide who they hired because he had a tag. So, um, there's not a lot of people who are, can actually be successful with the mountain lion hunting. Yeah. My brother had an interesting encounter with the mountain lion. Just a quick size story. It was like two, three years ago in North Idaho. He was driving to high school one morning and he had a mount, a young mountain lion run across the, our dirt road in front of him. And we live, you know, definitely in a rural area, but you know, kids sit at, sit at bus stops. So that was pretty cre- creepy to <laughs> see for him to see. <laughs> I've seen a few in the wild, but, I can count it on one hand, you know. It's not very often. And I mean, you just, you almost can't hunt them traditionally. No. You, like, have to tree them. So They're on, always moving. They're, yeah. On the Meat Eater podcast, they, uh, they brought on these guys. They were in, I want to say, the Spokane area. And they were, like, tranquilizing and relocating mountain lions that are in the suburbs. And, uh... They would put GPS collars on them or some form of to where they could track them. And uh, they'd follow this phone or whatever. And like it would pinpoint within six feet of where the mountain lion is. And there were times that they would be within six feet of the mountain lion and they could not see it, which that blows my mind. Like that's a pretty big predator and you just you're within six feet and just can't see it. Just as predators go, you know, that thing is, they weigh, what, 150 pounds? Yeah. Um, they're, they're not very big. They hunt alone, and they take down elk. So yeah. you have to be, like, an apex predator to be able to do that. So mountain lions are nothing to mess around with. Well, for sure. And usually, you know, especially if you're not hunting one, you don't know it's there until likely it's too late. Since yeah. Since you're an ambush predator. Creepy. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. So that's what's happening in Montana right now, right? Yeah, a little bit of news stories there. Uh, let's even when we're not in the season, even when we're not in the season, we got hunting news. So, oh yeah, there there's always something, you know. So let's uh, let's transition into our main topic of the day: how to become a hunter, one hundred one. So I think first and foremost, you are going to need to get a firearm. And feel comfortable shooting it. Like, you need to put lots of hours behind the the gun or the bow. And uh, really become a competent shooter. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're thinking of starting to get into hunting, the first thing you're probably going to think is, well, I can't hunt without something to kill the animal with. So, like, number one is I got to get, you know, a tool that I can actually do the hunting with. For sure, and especially when you get that tool, you know, it's going to be really important that you're familiar with it, find what you're comfortable with. You know, there's tons of options out there just in rifles alone or archery alone, you know. So it's really finding what you're comfortable with, especially 
since you're taking down a potentially a very large animal, you know, that's a big feat to accomplish. Yeah. And there's probably going to be, yeah, a lot of questions. The, the number one question I probably hear is what caliber should I get? Um, and that's just a rabbit hole all on its own. Um, funny enough, you could probably get a really good rifle at a cheaper price than a really good bow. Um, rifles, I mean, starting in around, I would say, the $600 range, um, you can get very accurate rifles that are very dependable. Um, and all the way up uh, into the 600 to $1,000, which is, I would say, fairly affordable. Um, it's not, if you're on a very limited budget, they have rifles down as low as 200 that you can get into. They can go to um, a pawn shop and get an old one, yeah. you know. And, I mean... With a cheaper rifle, typically you're just getting, you know, a little bit cheaper material. You're not going to necessarily hold your accuracy as at long as, at far distances. So I would say if you're just getting in, um, you're probably not going to be comfortable shooting at long distances anyway. But I would say really try to close that distance as much as you can if you're um, if you're getting kind of starter rifles, um, just because they're going to be uh, more reliable at, at a closer distance. Yeah, I would say if you're a new hunter. I would not push it past 300 yards for shooting. You know, like, after that, you, you have control of that. But after, mm -hmm. like, three, maybe 400 yards, you have factors to consider. You have um, bullet drop. You have side winds. Um, elevation can uh, take a put. I don't know. You know what I mean? Elevation can affect mm -hmm. accuracy. For sure, and then you have the time travel. If that animal's moving, you got to compensate for that. So there's just a lot of little things once you hit that 300-yard mark that really get magnified. And then you start relying on your, you know, your scope more, and that's just a whole other thing to get into. Because um, if you get a rifle, I mean, if you if you plan on shooting over 50 yards, uh, then you're not going to want to use iron sights. You're gonna you're gonna have to put a scope on there mm -hmm. um, to really. Do yourself the justice and do the animal the justice of being able to take it down fast. I know people shoot animals on iron sights out to 100 yards or maybe more, um, but a lot of those guys spend so much time behind their iron sights that it's you, you just can't even fathom how much they're doing. So you're you're doing yourself an injustice if you're not putting a scope on there. For sure, and it's very situational too. Like, what animals do you think you'll be hunting mostly? Are you a waterfowl hunter going after birds? Well, obviously. Don't get a rifle for that. Or, you know, if you're going mostly after deer and elk, then yeah, rifle is a very good choice. Or if you're like, no, I want to get an archery, you know? So it's just really what you are wanting to get into and what kind of ammos you're hoping to pursue. So I know us here, we kind of hunt a pretty good variety. I mean, I don't think that most any of us really are big waterfowl hunters, but what was, you say your guys' kind of go to rifle is I know mine's a 270 and I mostly chase after elk and deer, mostly deer. 270 is a great round. I I shot a 30-30 was my first gun. It was iron sight, and I didn't go past 100 yards, and then went up to 30-odd six, and I liked it, but I got to the point where I wanted to shoot those longer distances. Um, and now I am shooting a 7mm Remington mag, and I it's great. I can shoot up to 700 yards with it. I wouldn't push it past that, but that's what I got it for, and I really enjoyed that <laughs> round. That's funny, actually. My wife shoots a seven mm mag, and she, her it's her dad's, and she loves it. <laughs> it's great, man. It's I think it's all around good. Nothing wrong with two seventy, you know. I oh just, yeah. I think it's an all around good gun for basically yeah. all 
species in North America. Well, that's, that's my next gun purchase is going to be a 7mm rim mag. And I mean, just the kind of added benefit of a Magnum, uh, even a, a 7mm bullet's smaller than a 30 6 bullet, but that Magnum just puts that extra punch behind it, and that thing hits like a train. Um, yeah, the 7mm actually has the same uh, diameter as a 270 bullet. Yeah. It just has the Magnum charge. Yeah, so it's just going faster, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. And that thing is accelerating like crazy, so you're getting a lot of force behind it, uh, and the, enough force to take down those big animals. Um, my first gun was a seven mm eight. It's you know it's it's similar to like the two seventy, uh, kind of a smaller cartridge. Um, really good gun if you're uh, kind of a kid starting. Um, it doesn't really have any recoil that's gonna hurt a kid, so putting them behind the gun at a range and letting them shoot 10 shots. They're not going to, it's not going to take their shoulder off. Um, they're going to feel fine. They're going to feel comfortable. Um, which is really important, uh, especially with youth hunters, you know, kind of the, when hunters are coming in, they kind of want the biggest, baddest gun they can find. So, you, you know, if you, if you put a kid behind a 300 wind mag, um, the kid's probably not going to like it and probably not going to like to shoot it. And it's going to have like one or two shots in them. Um, and, Part of, you know, with your rifle, you want to be really comfortable. And part of being really comfortable is being able to sit at the range and shoot through 10, 10 shots, 20 shots. Um, and so, you know, a 270 can take down an elk. So why put a kid behind a 300 when a gun that's they're going to feel much more comfortable with um, and shoot better uh, can do do the same job? And so I started with 7 mm 8 uh, it's a great gun as a kid. Shot my first deer uh, with that gun, first and second deer, um, and then I moved into the thirty out six, and that's what I've been using ever since. Um, really comfortable with that. Uh, I've taken down, well, mostly just deer and antelope, but my dad's taken down elk and moose with it. So it's got a wide variety of animals that it can take down. It's really if you're looking for something, you're you're um, start hunting, but you're kind of in your teens, your twenties, your thirties whatever age it is, uh, if, if you're in your teens, uh, like your upper t later teens, uh, a 30 out six is a great, just kind of Swiss army knife rifle to kind of get into. Same with the seven mm rim mag. They, they actually have really similar, um, uh, kicks on them. Uh, like for your force, your foot pound force, it's, it's within like two pounds. So, um, really can't go wrong with either one of those. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Another thing is, uh, I would say like, ammo availability i do think that yes. 30 odd six you're gonna have the most available ammo say you fly up you fly to i don't know for africa you're gonna go do a safari which i wouldn't do with 30 odd six but no uh, you're gonna go do a <laughs> safari you would that cartridge would more than likely be available in basically any country in the world other than during the pandemic it has been a nightmare to find 30 odd six ammo because 30-06 has been the most popular cartridge since like the mid 1900s, but part of being the most popular cover, the most popular cartridge is every almost everyone who has a gun has a 30-06, and so that ammo has just flown off the shelves when it's in. Um, so just another thing to consider. Um, again, this is for starters. Yeah. Uh, as you kind of become more in tune with your hunting, you you may find that you know I want a you know a 7mm when I'm chasing antelope and deer. Um, and then when I'm chasing elk, like I, I've decided I want to go up to a 300, I just want that little bit bigger bullet. 
Um, and then you can kind of you can kind of split your guns up into what animal you're hunting. But as just starter rifles, um, especially here in Montana and really anywhere in the uh, northwest of the lower 48, um, I mean, you can't hunt grizzlies here. So the biggest animal you're going to tackle is a moose. Um, and the smallest animal you're going to tackle is probably like a blacktail. Um, they, I, th I think they're pretty small. Um, maybe an antelope's around the same size. But a 30-06 or a 7mm can take any animal on the spectrum that you're looking at, mm -hmm. which is kind of just really nice when, like here in Montana, we get a variety of tags. So being able to use the same rifle the whole season is definitely kind of an added bonus. Absolutely. For sure. And just, you know, one thing to also take in consideration is just, you know, oh, I have a really large caliber rifle, you know, don't just assume that just because you have a large caliber rifle, it's going to take anything down wherever you shoot it. You're still going to need a good shot placement, but not to say it, large caliber won't help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's, it's not necessarily the rifle. It's who's behind the rifle. So your rifle can be as accurate as possible, but if you're not uh, spending the time behind it, then it's, it's really not going to be that useful. So you really, even with a cheap rifle, if you spend your time behind it, you can get very deadly with that. Yeah, and then kind of transition to a different form of weapon like bow hunting. Um, you have the compound versus recurve. I've never shot a recurve, but it is very, very technical. And, and then a bow, a compound bow is going to be less technical, but still you have to put in a lot, a lot of reps. And uh, it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in, in all honesty, if you are really interested in hunting, um, and especially in bringing meat home to your, to your, for yourself and for your family, I would not start with archery. No. Um, you're going to learn a lot in rifle and get a lot of skills. Um, and rifle, you know, you, you only have to get 200 yards from an animal, so you, you don't have to be quite as technical, especially, like, um, playing your wind, per se. Um, as you do in archery. Archery is kind of, in my opinion, the next step up from rifle. If when, when I have children and start teaching them to hunt, um, the first thing I'm going to teach them is rifle hunting. Absolutely. Um, teach them the gun and, safety. and Yeah, for sure. Um, archery just kind of takes it to a whole new level. It's way more technical. It's way more about how you, uh, you know, conduct yourself in the woods, moving real slow. You have to be, you know, uh, attuned to everything that's going on around you. Um, if you want to just get close and you're just kind of out there for the experience and you want to hunt, but really it's just about the experience of being out there then, and you want to do archery, that's great. You're going to, I mean, even if you're not a great archery hunter, you're probably going to have situations where you get to around a hundred yards. I'm no, by no means a fantastic archery hunter or even a, a great archery hunter, but I could reliably get to within a hundred yards of the animals. And so, um, if you're just trying to do that, um, then by all means go for it. I'm not saying like don't archery hunt if you've never hunted before. It, it's a wonderful experience. I would just say if you're really wanting to hunt for the main reason being putting meat on the table, you're going to be much better off to start with a rifle and then kind of work into uh, your archery as you kind of get the get the funds to kind of support that because it's not it's not cheap to get into. No, it's not. And but you know there are some some more positives towards archery like for the experiences i guess you know like uh archery it's going to be much more intimate with the animal you're going to have to get really close and those experience are those experiences you can't replicate them mm -hmm. like almost all of my 
most memorable experiences are when I'm within like 50 yards of an animal. It, not to say it's like shooting an animal isn't memorable, but uh, you really get to know that animal in like an intimate setting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Definitely a lot oh, more yeah, personal I, experience. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean some of my best memories are archery hunting. So if you want to be out there personal with the animals, there's no better way to do it. So I'd say like the next thing, like we already talked about getting proficient with your weapon. I'd say right. the next thing you need to do a hunter safety class. You can right now with COVID, I believe you can do most of it online. You might have to do a field day. Um, mm-hmm. Traditionally, like I went when I was, I think either 11 or 12 mm-hmm. and uh, you sit in a class for like a month and go through everything and have a field day. And it's not too bad though. It's, they teach you some valuable things and how to read mm-hmm. regulations, stuff like that. Yeah, it's definitely useful. And I mean, you have to do it, but for good reason. Um, if you've grown up hunting um, and, you know, you've learned from your dad or uncle or just, a, you know, an authority figure in your life who you look up to and you've been out in the woods, then your the class is going to be common sense. It's majority I would say is focused around safety of yourself and the other hunters in the field and keeping everyone safe. Cause number one, we all want to go home um, in one piece. Yep. And so even if we don't have an animal, like we want to be out there enjoying the experience, but we want to be safe. So like it's hunter's education, another common term you're going to hear is hunter safety. It's going to just teach you a lot about the safety, but it's also going to set you up for success as long as far as um, not breaking the law. They're going to teach you, you know, how to read the regs, um, kind of going to go over everything that you need to know and need to do before the season or as the season's going. Um, and so it's, it's very valuable. And if you've never done any hunting and you're just trying to, you're kind of starting from scratch, getting into it, you're going to learn a lot at yeah. these hunter educate through this hunter education program. For sure. And if you've even never shot a gun before going to going, it's still a great thing and you'll learn a lot. And it's not like you have to shoot a gun before going. No, mm-hmm. you know, you can go to it with no experience whatsoever and they'll teach you everything in and out about a gun, the safety hunters code, or I think it's, is it the hunter's code of ethics? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we have the 10 shooting laws, like, you know, keep your finger outside the trigger guard. So you're ready to shoot those kinds of laws. I mean, ethics, they're not like legal laws, but mm-hmm. definitely good things to follow. And your career in your time hunting. It's also important to note, at least here in Montana, uh, if you take hunter's education, that only permits you to hunt during rifle season. And then you have to take bow hunter's education to, um, give yourself the opportunity to hunt during the archery season. So if you want to do archery right off the bat, you're going to have to take hunter safety and bow hunter safety. Yeah. You're going to have to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause here in Montana, um, every season that you hunt, if you want to do archery, you have to buy a bow stamp. Uh, and it's only like 10 bucks, but you, you can't buy the bow stamp without having the proof that you completed the, um, bow hunter safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, next thing they're going to teach you about the hunter's regulations and you need to know these regulations inside and out. You need to know everything, especially in the areas you're hunting um, because it's legally what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And it's constantly changing. Um, they change every year. Depending on, yeah, depending on, you know, no matter what happened in the last hunting season, maybe, you, you know, not a lot of people were successful, but all of a sudden it's a harsh winter and there's a big die off of a herd or here in Montana, blue tongue ravages whitetail 
um, and can decimate a population. You know, we've got, you know, the introduction of some chronic wasting disease, which changes some seasons. So um, season to season, it could be very different on um, if you need to draw and tag, if your over-the-counter tag works, if they're even allowing hunting in that district. Um, out east, you know, when blue tongue ravages white tails and you, you can't shoot white tail deer. Um, and the year before you could on an over-the-counter tag. So really important. The regs come out, you know, late February uh, for Montana every year. Um, and usually, you know, you're hunting around the same districts, but it's it's free to go into FWP and pick up a reg book. And the regs are also online. So it's really good to just keep that reg book in your car. And then you're driving into a new district or just looking up the district that you're going to hunt in the future um, going into the season. Uh, just know those regulations. And they're not going to, they're usually not going to change um, between February and the hunting season. So unless something drastic happens, which I've never seen happen. Um, but I think if there's a big die off, they could have a big announcement that the regs have changed. Um, but if something were to happen where the regs do change between February and the season, it's, it's going to be big news. It's going to be hard to miss. It's going to be all over that check the regs for these districts. My go-to nowadays, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, my go-to nowadays is, on X hunt i use that all the mapping services to know exactly where i can hunt and everything but you can also look at your regulations through there and it directs you to fwp um it just makes it a little bit easier so you're not confused which that, that does happen people think they read mm -hmm. the map wrong and this will tell you exactly where you're at and then what's legal where you can hunt and everything just especially in montana don't rely on only using the onyx hunt if you plan on going somewhere that has no cell service so if you're going somewhere where you drive in and all of a sudden you don't have service and you didn't look up the regs before you got out there then you're not going to be able to see them so yeah, you need to look them up um, before your hunt so you need to look them up but it's a great tool especially sitting at home you, you're going through it shows you all the districts you're like oh this district's close to me click on that district you can click right to the regs page and see what you can hunt um but we've had days even in the field where we're where I've been driving, uh, knowing I'm going to hunt a district, um, but we haven't seen anything. We're kind of driving the border of another district, and I'm in cell service, and I can be like, hey, I can just look at the regs on the dis the other district next to us. If, so if we see something, then we know what we're legal to shoot. For and sure. then you and don't have to yeah you don't have to memorize stuff. Sorry, Eric. Yeah. Oh no worries. And I was going to just add, you know, if you ever have questions, you know, just go to your local um, fish wildlife parks is our local office or our state agency for wildlife you know they're there to help you out if you have those questions i know last year chronic wasting disease is getting kind of rampant in southwest montana so they did an extension of the hunting season which i was like really i saw that news article I'm like this can't be right so i went down to the place and talked to them like oh yeah no it's good you just if you have an unused deer license at the time they let you go out and shoot and i think that's gabe when you shot your first white tail correct Yep. Yep. Our season typically runs from October uh, to the end of November for deer with a rifle. And with the chronic wasting, it was pushed into mid-February uh, in like two districts for white-tailed deer. And so I was able to harvest a, a doe in January. Yeah. So it's just being, you know, just be aware of what's going on with your local state agency. And then also just be familiar with what those regs are for the area you're going to be hunting. You know, if if you're only hunting in these two little districts, have them, have them pretty well memorized. And, you know, you don't need to memorize every single district because I know Montana has a lot and that would be a lot to memorize. But, you know, wherever you know you're going to be actively hunting, just be very familiar with what they are because that's the last thing you want to do is you 
get up on that big bull elk and you're drawing up on it and you're like wait was it brown tine or was it spiked or was it this or that and then you can get a lot of trouble if you shoot the wrong animal and it's on you to know that yeah so and sorry go ahead i was just gonna say here in montana we don't i haven't encountered a district where we have a certain size bull other than brow tine um but like eastern montana i think there's a couple Okay. spike only but i don't i don't know cool. the districts um i was just going to bring up if you're not hunting in montana but say you drew a washington tag uh, listening to david last week um one of the rules was it had to be a three point or bigger elk and so you if if you're in those districts um then that's going to kind of come down to investing in good glass mm-hmm. because you're going to need to know what you're shooting at um and so luckily here you know we need to have a brow tine that's four inches um that gets fairly easy to determine. And if it's a branch antlering bull, it's almost guaranteed to have uh, a brow tine that's greater than four inches. But if you're in a, in a state where you have to shoot one that's over a certain size, um, then you have to, you know, you have to be really confident in what you're shooting in um, because you can get in a lot of trouble for shooting something that that's too small. It's sort of like catching a fish that's, uh, you know, it's supposed to be 16 inches to keep and you keep a 14 inch fish. You're going to get in trouble if FWP comes up. Uh, so it, it's, it's similar to that, but, it's kind of taken um, on a more serious level when it's a big game animal. Oh, absolutely. So next, so you bought your rifle or your bow, you got proficient with it. You took Hunter's education, went through that, passed it, got your tags and you know the regulations. So next thing you're going to have to decide, are you going to want to hunt by yourself or are you going to want to hunt with a friend? So by yourself, it took me a long time to feel comfortable in the woods by myself. I started off with my dad, you know, going out there with friends. Um, and it's still scary and daunting every once in a while when you're by yourself, you know? So oh, yeah. I would recommend starting off with a friend. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think in Montana, you're, when you start out, you're not even allowed. And I might, I might be totally messing this up. So don't take me, but I think, you weren't allowed to hunt on your own until you were over 15? I do not know. Sounds kind of familiar, like the youth hunt where you have to be accompanied by a parent. I think you almost you have to be accompanied by a parent at a certain age. And, I mean, number one, you can't drive yourself. Um, but this was the goal of this was kind of have a parent drop their kid off, drive to the other side of the mountain, meet them on the top. And part of it's just like, um, it's, it's a safety thing. And so when you're starting out in the woods, if you, if you're starting hunting and you've never been out there before, it's, um, it's dangerous. You've got a weapon. So, I mean, when I was my first year hunting, I had my gun, um, go off on my shoulder. Uh, I was, I was carrying it around. I'd, I'd switch sides. The safety got clicked off on my bag and somehow I'd, I'd hit the trigger and my gun went off on my shoulder. Um, and so stuff happens in the woods. Um, you fall down, you, you know, uh, you could, there's predators out there. There's all sorts of things that can happen to you. And so when you're starting out hunting and you don't have any experience out there, it's, um, you really want to have someone with you just for that comfort sake. Uh, but also in the case of something happening, you want to have someone, uh, who can help you out. Um, I wouldn't recommend doing intense solo hunting until you feel really experienced in the woods um, you probably want to have a sidearm, uh, when you do that, just with the predators that we have, uh, 
but we, I mean, bear spray, that's what I carry right now. Um, but yeah, it's not only for comfort's sake, you're going to feel way more comfortable having someone there with you, but also for, for safety's sake, um, you, you can put yourself in a really bad situation when you're alone, um, especially without cell service in a lot of the places in Montana. You really, you really are on your own if, if something happens. Yeah. And first of all, you need to become a good woodsman. You know, you need to feel mm -hmm. comfortable in the woods. If you want to go by, your, by yourself, you need to feel comfortable in the woods by yourself. You need to know how to start a fire, how to find water, all the basic things, which that'll come for sure. You're like, you'll feel more comfortable. You'll know exactly what to do, but starting off with someone it, when you're young, obviously for a safety reason, when you're older, uh, there's a little bit of that. You're obviously a little more aware uh, of like mortality and stuff like that. Um, but also it's just going to, you're going to learn things from someone going to feel more comfortable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, there's so many ways you could, I, I mean, I could totally understand if you and your, say you and your friend have never hunted before. And so you both want to start. Um, so you're going out in the woods together, but there's still no experience in between you two. Um, I would say, you know, to make, to give yourself the best chances during hunting season, go do some camping trips in the summer and where you plan to hunt, do some walking around, get familiar with the woods, get familiar with your, you know, your outdoorsmen, go, go walk, uh, you know, even 500 yards from your camp and whatever you have in your backpack to start a fire, practicing, starting a fire with that practice, you know, collecting some wood, collecting some dry material. Um, you know, it's, it's good to have water filters with you practice. If you have those practice, you know, collecting water or boiling water, um, just like get comfortable with where you're going to be and get comfortable with being in the outdoors. Um, if you're both starting from kind of from scratch when this, because I totally understand, you know, you don't want to necessarily, maybe you don't want to hunt with someone who has all this experience and you have no experience. And so you want to kind of learn these things together with someone else. You'll experience some great things and learn as you go. Um, but just make sure you're comfortable. Start out small. Don't go four miles in uh, because, you know, you're starting and that's what you see on like the meat eater crew. Those guys hunt year round and that's like what they do. Uh, start out with, you know, with a, with a mile trip round hike. So if something were to happen, you're a mile from your truck and it's kind of doable to get back and then work your way into those, you know, those more advanced, um, longer trips uh, as you gain the experience. Yeah, if and if you're hunting, sorry, if you're, I was just going to say, and then, you know, if you're hunting with someone who has a lot of hunting experience, you may be able to push a little bit farther um, than you would with, with someone with no hunting experience because you're kind of relying on their experience um, and their, uh, um, you know, their skills in the woods. And then you're also having someone to learn from as you go. So it might give you a little bit more of a fast track to learning how to be a good hunter. There. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think Gabe worded it perfectly to start small. So Definitely. say you are by yourself, you can't find someone to hunt with. Once again, start small, work your way into the bigger hunts. Start with grouse. Uh, that's an easy mm -hmm. hunt. You can just walk, walk logging roads and you don't have to go very far from the road. Get you a little more comfortable. Then maybe go up to antelope. That's a pretty easy hunt. You don't, you're not super remote. Um, work your way into it, go to deer, a little bit harder than antelope, and then go into elk, and then you can start doing those solo hunts. And I really like the way you said start small. I would also say, especially with starting small, and like what Jay said, um, 
Antelope in Montana isn't always an easy draw. So if you're saying, oh, I want to start with antelope before deer, um, don't be don't be intimidated by starting with deer if you don't get an antelope draw. Um, you can still do the same type of hunt that you would for antelope for the deer, kind of take it easy. Um, it, it is a little bit more difficult than the antelope. But um, just don't don't take it on just like, I have to start with antelope before deer. Um, definitely feel free to jump into deer, but I totally agree you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot more if you start going after deer and then transition to elk, um, because elk is just such a unique hunting experience, um, and it's so taxing on you and your skills that you're really gonna want to build those up in deer. And typically, when you're deer hunting, you're gonna see a lot more deer. Um, when you're elk hunting, there are a lot of days you don't see elk, and it gets very taxing on your mental um, your mental focus and your kind of how excited you are to go out there. And so when you're seeing if you're hunting deer and you're seeing deer every day, it keeps you really motivated. Like, oh, I'm seeing the deer. It's, it just hasn't happened yet. And you really want to go out there. When elk, when you're just like, I've gone out for two weeks and I haven't seen an elk, but I found sign. It, it's hard to be like, well, I should keep going out because I am I might get on them this time. So um, start out with, you know, especially deer and antelope, you're, you're going to be into the animal you're hunting, which makes it really enjoyable and helps you kind of get those experiences of like actually being, making stocks and animals for sure and if i could add anything if i add anything to that i would just say you know hunting can be as complicated or as simple as you want it to be it could be a really huge adventure you're like okay i'm gonna hike five miles into this area and just sit there but you know for your first hunt i probably wouldn't recommend you do that you know you can just do like five minute walk from your truck drive to some public land find a good spot just to sit and wait and see what happens and then just kind of learn what suits your style. Maybe you're a sit and wait kind of guy or you're a spot and stock kind of person, you know, and it's just getting those repetitions out in the woods to make, to make you feel comfortable. And, you know, and maybe your first season, you don't get an animal and you know what, that's life that happens. So you, you just wake up the ne next, you go the next season, wake up in the morning and just try again and rinse, wash, repeat and learn. One more thing we didn't touch on. Um, Sorry, I feel like I'm kind of dominating the conversation right now. Um, we talked a lot about gaining experience while hunting alone, but also there's just something about sharing an experience with a friend in the woods. It is just really enjoyable to hunt with friends um, and share those experiences. So it's I, there's definitely times when I've just in, totally enjoyed being out alone, Um and you can have really great experiences, and there's something to that. I think you should hunt alone a little bit when you get advanced just to kind of, you know, hone your own skills by yourself. But it is just a lot more fun to be out there with people, hunting with your friends, sharing those experiences, you know, sharing those inside jokes that you make out in the woods when some stuff happens. So the definitely camaraderie is, is awesome. For sure. Definitely. And you're around like-minded individuals. Oh, I thought that was, never mind. Sorry, the <laughs> camera kind of threw me off there. So next thing I would say, you need to learn how to find animals. Like you're hunting them, you're, you're doing your best. My recommendation is to start with e-scouting. Like you do all your scouting online, you go into Google Earth and you find those. There's lots of tutorials on how to do it. Um, I recommend using like Elk 101 or Treeline Academy. They're going to show you those features on the landscape that are going to hold animals. Um, you can also do boots on the ground. Boots on the ground, you're going to gather the most information. 
Uh, you're going to look at scat. You're going to look at bedding zones. There's travel corridors, trails. You're going to get a lot more information from that. But to get you like a general scope of it, I would start with e-scouting and scout with your computer, with your phone, stuff like that. Definitely. And just learn the habits that your animal has. You know, animals have migration patterns. Then they have ways that they react on day one of the season, you know. Just because you saw these animals there two days before season doesn't mean they'll be there four weeks into season. So just being able to learn that, you know, they move around. So and you'll have to get an idea of where they go, where their escape corridors are, if you if you're able to find those or just general locations of where these animals are are. Like you're not gonna find white tails way far away, at least in arid regions, you're not gonna find them way far away from sources of water and like cottonwood groves, that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't want to say never, but odds are you'll find them in those smaller areas, for example. So that's a good spot to start. And I would say this can be as cheap or as expensive as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, you can go the Google straight Google Earth method, um, kind of pick out. Typically, you're going to have an idea of where you want to hunt, and then you can just kind of give it an overarching on Google Earth and kind of pick out some spots that look, look promising. Um, uh, Montana Cadastral here gives you uh, free information as to who owns all the land. Um, it's a little bit hard to work with, but you can kind of figure out if that's public land or private land. Um, and then you can go to FWP, like Eric said, and kind of figure out where animals are. Um, you can just go to the previous season's harvest statistics and just say, oh, you know, in this district, there was 10 elk shot. Like, this is probably not a great district to hunt elk if there's not, not a high number of harvests um, and kind of go that way. Um, if I had a recommendation, uh, if you're starting out hunting, I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to be hunting one state, um, starting small with that. Um, and I say starting small, but I've only ever hunted Montana, so there's no judgment. I, I've hunted small my whole life. Um, but it's $30 a year. Uh, you get all that information bundled into one spot that's really easy to use, and you'll have it in the field. Um, I'm not sponsored by Onyx by any means, so I'm not getting paid for saying that. But I've just found, um, not only for hunting, but just even like fishing access and stuff like that, it's just really good to know and feel comfortable that you're not walking on private property. Um, and also just kind of being able to analyze the terrain. And these these hunting apps now are starting to get better at, you know, um, you can even go into some, uh, some sites and they have terrain analysis where you can highlight all the south-facing slopes. Um, and that kind of gets way more into the more advanced uh, part of hunting. Um, and But like Onyx is a great way if you're willing to spend 30 bucks and if you're willing to just uh, go the free route for a couple of years and kind of find your footing there, then Google Earth and Cadastral and uh, FWP are all great ways to start. Yeah, absolutely. I think Onyx is almost an indispensable tool at this point. Like it's it's in almost every hunter's arsenal, and it should be. Mm -hmm. There's there's reason for it. Uh, next, let's talk about learning how to read the sign animal sign. Learning how to read animal animal sign is pretty complex. Um, you can start. I mean, we I typically try to read scat. Uh, it seems to be the most effective way. Uh, just knowing how recently an animal's been there. Uh, for elk, especially like with uh, their scent, uh, their urine, their musk—that's a—that's another way. Um, I haven't gotten very good at reading, you know, tracks yet. Um, that's kind of the next step in my hunting uh, 
journey and tracking journey is reading tracks, but I, I don't really have uh, reading sign is probably one of the more difficult uh, parts of parts of hunting and probably more of an advanced step. But anyone can, you know, put their boot in a pile of elk poop. And if it squishes down, it's like, you know, warm, then it's fresh. And if it's hard, uh, then, then it's been there for a while. Definitely. And, you know, tracking animals footprints, you know, that's one of the more popular, you know, when people think of tracking, you know, oh, find the footsteps and follow them to the animal. That can be really <laughs> tough in certain times of the year. Like, you know, the ideal setting that we always like here in Montana is if you can get that fresh layer of snow the night before you go hunting, and then you can see all the new fresh footprints in that new layer of snow, you know, but otherwise, you know, if you've had snow for a while or even no snow, especially with no snow conditions, it is, can be very tough to follow animal tracks because they just, you may not even see them. They may not be there if the ground's super hard, you know, so it, it can, I definitely agree with you, Gabe, that tracking footprints can be difficult if you don't know what you're looking for or if the conditions aren't very right for it. Another thing I like to do is, uh, besides following tracks, is uh, kind of looking at those food sources and seeing if they're browsed. Eric and I, we had a, a research project that we worked on together a couple of years ago, and we had to look at like the browse and the, on the willows and stuff like that. And that's always kind of a, an, a good thing to do, and you can kind of see what food source they're keying in on, and it's a good animal sign thing, you know? Definitely. And Definitely. If you know they're going to be there frequently, and especially, I know, walking around a lot this summer, I was finding deer beds. So that's another good sign, too, especially since, you know, hey, they may come back here. So why don't I get out of here before they, I put my smell in this area and then just find a good spot to sit and wait because you know, you've, know they, there's a good chance they'll come back because, you know, animals do have movement pattern, patterns even just through the day. So if you can find them, you can anticipate where they may end up being. And if, I mean, in our day and age, um, go online. You know, Meat Eater does a ton of stuff. Remy Warren does a ton of stuff. You know, the Elk 101 courses do a ton of stuff. And even though it's, you know, Elk 101, their reading, their, you know, sign reading uh, lessons are going to be valuable for any species that you're hunting, not just elk. It's, um, yeah, it's a general overview. Yeah. There's just so much online right now that is such valuable information so if you're if you're starting out um meat eater like i i personally listen to remy warren a lot and is cutting the distance and um you can learn a ton of stuff from all these online resources before ever stepping a foot in the woods um no amount of information that you learn online is going to make up for just being out in the woods there's there's a lot of stuff that you just have to learn from experience um but it gives you a great starting point uh, with all these online resources to at least, you know, have, have an idea of how, how you should be starting this. And they have stuff on sign reading and, and calling and, you know, stalking and spotting tactics. So just, if you, if you're going into this, just cut, you, you have no experience. I would just say, listen to all that. If you, uh, have experience in the woods, you're going to find out where some of your strong points are and some of your weak points and where you want to get stronger. And then you can kind of specify from there what, you know, episodes or videos or whatever you want to watch to kind of try to hone those skills in from other people. And then you just have to get out in the woods and kind of go for it on your own to really, really gain that experience. YouTube definitely. is definitely your friend. There is so much free sources out there on YouTube and it is an indispensable resource. YouTube has everything. YouTube is great for this. Yeah. And you can always just do Google search hunting 
this animal in your state and just see what results pop up and just, you know, read a lot and just realize, you know, just because you're an internet expert doesn't mean you can expect to be a field expert. You know, there's a, like Jay, you said, there's a big difference when you go, when you read, oh yeah, elk tend to hide out in these groves, for example, maybe you read and you go out in the field and you go to that grove and you're like, well, where are they? You know, it's just sometimes what you read isn't what happened, but it's a very great place to start because then you get your background you know, and it's never wrong to just read and get more ed- educated on these things. At the end of the day, the animals are going to be where you find them. You need to hunt the animals. You need to not hunt the terrain. Just so, like, you're you're going to do all this research, like Eric said, and they're going to say, oh, they're going to be here. It turns out they're not there. They're in some completely different thing. You need to just hone in, hunt the animals where they're at. Don't focus on... The landscape, if it looks like it's perfect, you know, it might not be. They elk have other elk or deer, anything else have other things in mind. And I think it might be important to touch on, um, since we've kind of brought it up a couple times, the, the <clears throat> mindset that you should have going into the woods <coughs> as a new hunter. Um, number one, hunting is hard. You are going to go home without an animal way more times than you'll go home with an animal. And you're probably going to go home without seeing an animal more often than you'd like. And so don't expect to go out there. You know, on these hunting shows, they're always showing animals. You know, that, that's part of the, you know, people don't want to watch what they're actually seeing, which is hours upon hours of nothing. And then some, you know, five minute clips of when it's in, intense. So there's going to be a lot of time that you're not on animals, a lot of time trying to find animals. So don't go out with the expectation that you're going to drive into your spot and you're just going to see animals everywhere and you're going to kind of have your, your choice. It is, it is difficult. So you have to go in, number one, with the mindset that I'm probably not going to see anything. Like, don't be disappointed, but be optimistic that I'm going to get on animals and kind of trust your skills there. Yeah, absolutely. And hone, hone your skills, you know. The more you get out there, the more experiences you put under your belt. You're going to know how to react next time. You're going to know what to do in specific situations. You're going to say, you know, last time I did this and the animal spooked. So maybe I'll do this other thing and it might turn out good for you. You just got to keep after it, hone your skills. And that is definitely rewarding. So say you did all these things. You got your tag, scouted, you shot an animal. Now you got to get the thing. The funnest part. No, <laughs> uh, I definitely. If if you have someone that knows how to gut an animal, obviously, you want to learn from them. But YouTube is also another good source. Like I use the gutless method personally, and I don't. It they kind of gross me out to open up the cavity and everything. It's not terrible, but I would just prefer to do the gutless, reach in, get the tenderloins, get all the meat that I need. Less messy. Um, I learned that on YouTube. Randy Newberg had a great tutorial video, and I've used it ever since. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. YouTube is a good source. I know I watched uh, even like there was a time where I was hunt going hunting a lot as a kid, and I was pretty familiar with it. But then I, I always joked that I got my dad's stomach because I'd get a little squeamish sometimes when I was gutting an animal, and it wasn't the gutless method. So you're sticking your hands up there you know, pulling everything out and such. And I think one thing that helped me was being around other hunters 
so when they would get their animals, you know, at first I was kind of like uh, hesitant, but I'm like, you know what, this is something I really enjoy. I don't have any like issues I'm trying to find the right word where like my goes against beliefs or anything like that. It was just all like a stomach issue. So I thought, you know what, just get hands on and get in there and just get used to it. Get yourself exposed to it as much as you can. And one resource I found also was like, Stephen Rill posted a video and he has like step-by-step gutting a deer in like the de- the high or in the desert somewhere, I believe. And it was very helpful for me to kind of like, Oh yeah. So that really makes sense. Cause one thing that's nice is he explains why he's doing what he's doing as he goes along. So you're not just like, Oh, you just cut in there. And don't cut this, cut that kind of thing. And just being very familiar with animal biology. So, and kind of realizing why you're doing what you're doing you know, let an animal cool. Well, why? Oh, you don't want the meat to spoil. So, and it, if you can, it's very helpful to be around others who have done it before. So that way when it happens and, you know, and my other thing would be if you're in those situations where someone is getting an animal, you know, yeah, maybe that first time you just sit and watch, but try to be hands on and help whenever you can. That's the best way to learn. And I also want to say like, if sometimes say you drew a moose tag and you, harvested a moose at that point you probably had killed a few animals up to that point because you don't generally just draw a moose take but or or you live in alaska and you want to do that as your first hunt sometimes <laughs> you are going to have to just work with where the animal is out because it is so big and you're not going to be able to move it around you just got to work with what you what you have even with elk elk are sometimes hard to maneuver as well mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're by yourself and you're lifting a 500-pound animal trying to, you know, get it situated in a great way, sometimes it's just not going to work. You just got to work with it. Definitely. And that's where, like, starting with antelope and deer can be really useful because, well, basically for moose and elk, it's the same idea as getting a deer, but just scaled up because obviously you're dealing with a bigger animal. Everything's going to be bigger, heavier. So, you know, if you can get started on deer and antelope, it's a very great way to get started and understand. You know, I even got started with gutting animals with grouse, you know, I mean, obviously it's going to be way different, but at least you're getting that exposure to what it's like to be handling a dead animal and trying to clean up, clean it up. Yeah. I mean, I'm like Eric. Uh, I've, I've shot my fair share of animals and I've never done the gutless method. I've always gutted, but you know, I growing up as a kid, my dad would show me how to do it. Um, and I do some of the cuts and kind of get it, but, you don't know until you, you, you just have to gut it for yourself. And, you know, at a certain point it, you can watch as many online videos as you want and they're very good resources and they're going to give you a great idea, but you're going to figure it out as you do it. Um, sometimes you're going to make a bad cut and it's going to suck and you're going to have to deal with it, but you learn from those experiences. And so, you know, one of the things that I always did that my dad would tell me about is he'd say, you don't have to be so gentle. You know, I'm taking little tiny cuts going very slow through it and you don't want to you know sometimes you shoot an antelope and it's 80 degrees out and you don't have an hour to get your antelope you got to get that thing done in 10 minutes and it it gets messy and you just kind of got to work so the more animals that you get your hands on and deal with the the better you're going to get at it and the faster you're going to get at it but you just got to get that first one uh you'll have an idea of how it's done and then you just got to get your hands dirty with it and literally some most of the time it's pretty dirty getting your hands in there dealing with it but especially if you nick the stomach like oh man yeah, if you nick yeah. the stomach it is gnarly yeah and sometimes it. you 
That's sometimes, like, yeah, like I shot my antelope and my bullet broke on the rib. And so most of the bullet exited out the other side and one shard of bullet went straight into the guts. And as soon as I got in there, it was just nasty. And so then when that's happening, you really got to get the stuff out of there. You don't want your meat sitting in the guts. So you got to wash um, it and clean it. Yeah, but it's, it's really like all hunting. Uh, you're just not going to get the experience other than hands on doing it yourself. And uh that's just kind of the nature of the beast with with being in the outdoors is you just you just got to get out there and do it um make sure you bring a sharp knife yep a sharp knife makes a world of difference so if you're working with a dull knife it's going to be kind of miserable i recently switched over to uh disposable blades and they are sharper than shit if you cut yourself it's going to be a pretty damn good cut uh but you can just change those blades over and they're always sharp and I, i love it it's great, like a Havilland, or a, I don't even remember what I use. Similar to a Havilland. Yeah, I've heard a lot yeah. about those. I just I've never tried them, but it definitely sounds like a really good resource because, like you said, they're you can switch them out rather than having to like take time to sharpen them every time. Yeah, I use a Havilland. Um, the The pack I bought was like thirty bucks, and it came with twelve disposable blades, um, yes, and then it has a fixed blade on there, um, and it is just. It makes a world of difference. I did uh, my whole deer it, with a blade and even a lot of the <laughs> meat processing all with one blade without having to switch it. I think you could gut a whole elk pretty reliably on a blade. Um, they're kind of thin, so you, they, they will just kind of break sometimes. So if, if you're kind of in there wrenching on stuff and it breaks, make sure you get that little piece of blade that you broke off out of there because you don't want to be eating that when you process the meat. Yeah, that'd be pretty um, gnarly. Because that'll mess you up. So, just uh, be a, a little bit more gentle with the replaceable blades because they are a little bit thinner, but they're they make a world of difference, and I would definitely recommend them. I have the I have like the smaller replaceable one, then I have a larger one that Randy Newberg uh, cooperated, like helped design, and they're like a very large disposable blade. It's great. You don't really have to worry about it on that one, but on the smaller ones, you definitely okay. do. Yeah, mine are like little scalpels. Uh, and For sure. uh, the, I, I I broke one off once when I was trying to pop the uh, the hip bone out of its socket. So it wasn't in the meat. I, I just pulled it out a little bit, but I was like in there kind of wrenching on it a, a little bit. So that, that's totally on me. Um, and I could have used my big thick blade to kind of pop that out. But yeah, it, it's just stuff you'll figure out as you kind of go along. Okay. I mean, I'm still, I'm still, I've just recently watched a bunch of videos from uh, Remy Warren on how to... <laughs> process your game by yourself and what what cuts to eat and that stuff that i'm still learning um as a hunter you the the beauty of it is you'll always be learning there's never an experience that you're not going to be learning from and that's something that i 100 percent look forward to uh kind of doing this is just there, there's always something new there's always a new technique there it's just that's that's one of the beauties and joys of, of being a hunter definitely and now for the rewarding part of hunting you've gotten your animal what do you do with it? You know, do you, a lot of, there's a lot of different options out there. It just kind of depends also on what you want to, what you want to do with your cuts of meat and what you're willing to pay for. Cause sometimes some butcher shops, they'll let you, I, I haven't done this method much, but I understand, or at all, but I understand some places let you take in like bone on or bone in. So you can just take quarters in and you'll pay a little more for that. Usually what we'll do, what I'll do is I like to trim the meat off. 
and then take it to a butchering place that way it's a little cheaper because then they're not having to debone it for you but then you can always just process it yourself with i know a member of my family has a meat grinder so we would just buy suet and just spend a whole day just grinding burger it takes a little bit but it can definitely be very rewarding if you want to go that route and you know jay looks like you got something you wanted to say yeah i've done both i i prefer to do it myself and do as many steaks as i can as many definitely as possible but yeah i was gonna say um i know in butte i'm not gonna mention any names but there was a, a processing area that that took in wild game and they were mixing other people's wild game and just throwing it in the grind and giving you a grind. So it like with me, I'm very anal on how I like get an animal and how I quarter it and do everything. Cause I don't, I, that's, that meat is the most important thing. And I'm going to be eating that for a year. So if I don't know what anyone else does, they might be like, they might've gut shot the animal, not taking good care of the meat. It might've had a little bit of rancid meat from spoilage. And I just, if you can do it by yourself, but if you have to bring it to a processing center, that's fine. I just be wary for sure. I mean, I personally uh, have had a lot of, have had a lot of luck with processing centers and have gotten really good meat. Um, this was also from a Butte processing center, but Butte has two and this wasn't the one that was having the problems. Um, and they, they would do an amazing job. And so um, like Jay said, as many steaks as you can, those are easy to process on your own. Um, but when you start getting into burger, if you want to do sausage, um, that's when you start having to debate, do I send that meat to a processor or do I do the investment of getting a grinder, um, getting the other necessary tools to kind of process the meat uh, in those ways. Um, and so those are going to be higher initial investment, um, but in the long run are going to be cheaper than sending to a processor. And so then you kind of just have to, it's, it's kind of about what, what work you want to put in. Um, I know a lot of people who send an entire animal to a meat processor. They don't want to touch it. They just want to shoot it, bring it in and be hands off. And I know a lot of people who don't want anyone to touch the meat, but themselves. Um, I kind of, I can kind of see both sides and um, when you're starting out and you're buying stuff for hunting, it's probably not going to be worth your investment to buy your rifle and buy your gear and then go buy a meat grinder and go buy, you know, a vacuum sealer and all this. Um, it might be more worth it while you kind of pay off, pay your dues on just your gear investment to send it to a processor. And then once you become more successful and it's more worth your time, you know, you're shooting a couple animals a year. So you're going to get your money's worth out of your equipment. Then you can kind of start looking at, you know, buying a meat grinder and buying all this other stuff. So you can kind of do the, the whole process yourself and then have it kind of pay out on a money wise, uh, um, on a money scale. Definitely. And it just depends on what you want to. I know like my family, we do a lot of burger, but when I was growing up, um, we did a lot of jerky and man, that jerky would not last long because it was really good, but we had a dehydrator for that. So that might not be an option for you. And it just depends on what you're willing to spend. Like Gabe said, and what kind of cuts you want, you know? And jerky is a great tool. Um, my family has like a $60, little metal container that we smoke all our jerky in and that stuff lasts for months. So that's kind of a, if you have no other options and you just want to do a bunch of jerky, you can make that stuff last. Um, but you do want to eat it. And I mean, in my case, from what we've done, it's hard not to put the jerky down. It lasts about two weeks before we finish eating it. So. Yeah. 
Usually that's not a problem with meat spoilage. I would say like definitely invest in a, a larger freezer if you can afford it. If you're going to be hunting and you expect to take animals, you need a chest freezer because it's not going to fit in your conventional freezer fridge combo. Yeah, here in Montana, it's almost uncommon to see places without chest freezers. Literally. And yeah. typically, if, you, if you're a big hunting family, you have a freezer, and then you have your wild game freezer. Yep. I, I mean, if you, have a, if you have an elk, you'll fill up a freezer quick. And if you put an elk and a deer and an antelope down in a season, like that is a lot of meat, and that takes up a lot of space. So just be aware, because once you shoot something, you don't want to all of a sudden realize you don't have the space to keep it. And I mean, that's, that's a problem. Yeah, definitely plan ahead. So, and speaking of planning ahead, I know we talked a lot about the process, like, you know, getting started from shoot, getting your right firearm and stuff. But we, one thing I was kind of wanting to talk about a little more, I don't think we touched on is what kind of stuff do you guys carry in your pack? So I know, obviously we talked about having a knife. What other stuff you guys carry? Binoculars, um, first aid, water, what kind of stuff do you guys bring? I'll start her off. I have a, I have a Nalgene bottle <clears throat> that carries my water. Um, I'll have a water filtration system because we're we're drinking out of cleaner streams. If I was if I was like getting water from stagnant water, I would have drops and purification drops and stuff like that. But this is generally coming straight from the mountain, so I'll just uh, go through. I'll squeeze the water into my bottle. Obvious, I have game bags uh, for quartering the meat and hauling it out. Um, Obviously, knife, uh, 10 by 42 binoculars, got a 65 millimeter scope, um, a tripod to glass off the scope, a tent, dehydrated food, a jet boil. Jet boil is really essential for me. I eat a lot of dehydrated food. Obviously, like the, the snacks, the knickknacks, um, little first aid stuff. I don't bring a complete first aid kit, but I do have like a tourniquet. Um, patches and wraps and stuff in case because I have new skin uh, in case I'm developing blisters on my feet I'll throw a little new skin on there um, yeah not not a whole lot I try to keep it pretty minimal I'm probably forgetting some things but those are the big ones oh no worries and I know from for me I don't necessarily do a lot of or I'm trying to get into it now but most of my hunting was spent, you know, not too far from the truck or the house. So I wouldn't bring a ton of stuff, but I know I used to bring like a metal water bottle, man. Once you take a big hike, you immediately start learning ways you can cut weight. So I was going to be like, Nope, plastic water bottles, like not the crumply kind you get, you know, when you get like a 32 pack of waters, but like you said, an algae and water bottle, it's a little lighter and you're just looking for ways to cut down on weight if you're doing bigger hikes. But if you know, you're staying close to your rig, you don't necessarily need to, you bring in like water filtration if you're not going out ways, but it's a good thing to have if you're in an area where you're like, well, I could get lost, could get stuck here. And then just having that as a, a prepared for, you know, be prepared is like the boy scout motto, isn't it? So oh, yeah. just being ready for situations may come, you know, I bring, I also bring like a, most of what you said, Jay, but like, I also bring like maybe a little bone sock just for gutting the animal to help open up the pelvis, for example, when you're gutting it. So it's just kind of being prepared for situations and just being aware of what you're getting yourself into. You know, we talked with David last week. He's in an area that receives a lot of rain. So you're going to want to be able to bring like a poncho, that kind of stuff and get prepared for it while out here, 
yeah, we get rainy days and can get storms, but they're not near as frequent. So just being anticipating what could happen and dressing warm and bringing that kind of like fire starting stuff. If you expect to be in a situation where that could be a need. So it just really depends. Flashlights. I I forgot about flashlights. Oh, flashlights. That definitely, especially, you know, you know, towards the end of shooting light can be a very good time when animals start to move out into the fields to feed. I know a lot of our animals, we shot them in legal light, but then by the time we, you know, we're gutting them, getting them taken care of, it's pitch black because it can get dark fast, especially if you're in the forest. So having lights is a very, very important thing to bring. <laughs> I cannot speak to how important those are enough. And a headlamp because you don't want to have to hold a flashlight in your mouth or in a hand when you're gutting. It's annoying. Uh, you want to be you want to be hands free because uh, at that rate you kind of want to get out of there. Uh, so if you're holding holding your flashlight in your mouth or a hand, it's going to take a lot longer to get through that gutting process. And then it's covered in blood, and you're like got the blood. Yeah. It's it's not ideal. I, I carry headlamps, not specifically flashlights, but yeah, yeah. yeah and I definitely agree with uh, Eric Bonesaws. Huge help if you're going if you're doing the gutting method. If you're doing the gutless, I don't know if it's as important to have. You a don't saw. need a saw at all. Um, just one knife. There I've seen some people who've uh, like taken the neck in chunks and just left it all, like not cut the meat off the the spine, but taking the spine in the middle. Um, so if you're planning on doing those like full cuts, bone in, um, then you'll definitely want a saw. It'll just get you through those faster. Um, yeah, because like a lot of times you don't want to take all the bone home if you can avoid it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll I'll take the quarters off. Um, and with the knife, you can just maneuver around the hip socket, maneuver around behind the neck, and get the head off, get the legs off. The front quarters they aren't attached; it's just connective tissue. So just kind of go through there, and then just debone it. You can just follow the cuts of the muscle groups and just throw the bones out. It's not too bad. Nice. You see, I've been fortunate enough. Most of my animals I've shot have been close enough to a truck where we can just drag it over. <laughs> I know Gabe, you and I went hunting one time last year, and we have been hunting this area a long time and just not like chasing deer around and having to kind of compete with other hunters and they're pushing around and we're get we get there in the stand. We're like, okay, let's see what happens. And we're getting our rifles out and Gabe looks at me and goes, dude, there's a deer. I'm like, what you're pulling my leg. You're joking. He's like, no, right there. And I didn't even get my rifle out of the case that it happened that soon. And so Gabe turns around, walks a little bit, drops down, shoots the doe right there. And, you know, we we're less than a hundred yards from the truck. So you can get really fortunate sometimes. And so I know, and that's also one thing I'm been in the market for is because most of my hunting's been near my truck. I'm looking for a good pack that will allow me to be able to quarter these animals and throw them on my back comfortably and be able to haul them out. If I get into those situations. I, I love my pack. I got it a couple seasons ago. I rocked the stone glacier 6,900 or 5,900 and it's, it's big enough and it's got the meat shelf. I would highly recommend that. It's just not good on your pocketbook. It is very expensive. Yeah, they hurt. I just a couple months ago bought the uh, Mr. Ranch uh, Beartooth, and it was it was a dent in the pocketbook. But when you're looking at packs like this, uh, my pack is a lifetime warranty. So no matter what happens. I've, I've got a pack. So that was kind of a big selling point for me is this, this could be the last pack that I ever have to buy. Um, another thing with these packs, like Jay said, is uh, when you have a meat shelf, it just eliminates 
the need for, you know, a uh, pack frame, which usually you're not carrying a pack frame with it. So if you shoot something, you got to go back to the truck to get your pack frame. Uh, that's just another trip where you can't take as much meat. Um, and then, I, I mean, I, I haven't thought about this. I thought about it this week. But if you were to get attacked by a bear, would that frame on your back kind of help you out? Would that, would that be a little bit of more pack protection? does help you on, on your back. It's not going to, like, totally protect you. But it, it just a little bit extra, especially with your gear in there. It will. Yeah, and well, these are, like, full, these are, like, full back metal frames that are, like, expansive metal across for mine i mean i don't i don't know what kind of if that have any stopping power on a bear bite on your back but i mean your pack could help save you in some of those situations not that an expensive pack is going to help save you more than a cheap pack at that point but it's just kind of nice to know it's definitely an anti-grizzly backpack <laughs> yeah it's better to have something <laughs> on your back than nothing just straight spine mm-hmm. you know just yeah mm-hmm. but there are points sometimes when you're doing like uh, some deer hunting or some antelope hunting um, in certain spots, it is nice to not have a big pack. Uh, some of those things happen fast. And so if you kind of have a little situation where you got your pack with you, but you got a fanny pack that you can throw on, I mean, an antelope, you can pretty much throw over your shoulders and walk out uh, like not gutted, not anything. Uh, they weigh about a hundred pounds. So it, it is situational on, you don't want a, you know, back country, uh, full pack on a day hunt that you're, you plan on doing a two mile round trip. You can go a little lighter pack. Um, and on, you know, with antelope, especially you're hunting the flat grounds, you're usually not doing long walks. It, it's a light animal, um, that you're not really going to quarter and take out. You're just going to kind of gut and take out whole, um, then you can kind of adjust because, when you're just throwing a fanny pack on and going, it, it's a little faster. You're, it it kind of eliminates how much uh, like body area you take up, so it's, it's a little bit harder to see you. So um, it, it really does kind of depend on what hunting you're planning on doing. Uh, we bought the big packs because we are big elk hunters. Uh, you're not going to shoot the elk by the road, so you're going to have to pack them out. Um, and usually it's just the terrain is less forgiving, so you have to be more prepared with your uh, fire starter, your your water bottles, your you know, your, all your knives, your first aid, um, elk hunting is just, uh, it's, it's a, it's a different beast than a lot of other hunting. So it, it takes a lot more equipment. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that you guys think that we kind of forgot that would be valuable information for the new hunter coming in? Did you mention a rangefinder? I definitely have one. Um, that is, I'd say an essential piece of gear i totally forgot about that but especially for archery because just a couple yards is going to be make or break with rifle you can kind of guesstimate those distances and uh you can guesstimate but it's way more important if you're if you're planning on shooting at 300 yards and up um because your your bullet drop starts to have a significant effect uh at those far distances even with magnum rounds um they're gonna have less of an effect than just say like a 30 out six but it's significant and so being able to know the exact range for rifle, especially for archery, but for rifle too, is uh, really valuable. And you don't need fancy range finders. Uh, I think mine goes out to like 900 yards. You're so, not shooting past that regardless. So if I look and I can't range it, it's obviously too far that I'm even going to consider shooting it. But um, 
I mean, then I can start gauging. Oh, it's at 600. I'd like to get, you know, 300 yards closer if I can. Let's, let's arrange some hills around me. If I get to this knob, that's 300 yards. And then I should have a good shot, that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's all, it's, it's really a useful tool that you'll get more use out of than you think. If you have time and if you don't have a rangefinder, you can always use your mapping service. You can put down a pin and then like look at the features on the map and see what the line of sight is to it. That is also, you could do that as well. You're not going to be able to do it with archery, but you might have enough time with rifle. Yeah, and that's something too. You know, if you got a spot you like hunting, go in, you can go in there in the off season, just kind of pace it out and get a rough idea of how the distances work. I know for, for me, I, I've never had a really hunted with a rangefinder much, but I grew up in North Idaho where it's really thick forest. So, it, you know, odds are you're not going to be shooting 300 yards through a bunch of trees, anyways. So it's just kind of it was situational. But now that I'm moved out to here, there's a lot more areas where it is a lot wider open spaces and I'm not as familiar. So I'm definitely. A rangefinder is also on my to-get list. <laughs> yeah, and if you hunt with someone with a rangefinder, it's then you don't really need one. I mean, yeah, yeah. and you'll get familiar. I, I hunted a similar spot all year, and I was hunting a ridge, um, one particular ridge, and there were a couple branching ridges off it. And so by the end of the season, I had ranged that far ridge that if you, if I had pointed out an elk on that, I could have given you a distance within fifty yards. So say you go out with a friend um, that you plan to hunt that area alone, but your friend is a rangefinder. Just ask your buddy if you can borrow that rangefinder and just get some general distances. So if I'm shooting across onto the other ridge, my farthest shot at the top of the ridge is going to be 360 yards. And at the bottom of the ridge, it's, you know, 270. So if it's sitting in the middle, it's between 270 and 360. And you can say, okay, it's probably about 320 yards. Um, but then you'll just have an idea if you're out alone and you don't have a rangefinder. Just some general distances, you know, to significant points where you can kind of just be like, I know generally uh, how far that is. So I can kind of, I can get pretty close and I'm only going to be maybe an inch or two off on target uh, vertically. Yeah. And if you, if it's not in your budget, you're just going to have to get really good at, at distances. Like you're going to have to put in a lot of time at the archery range. You're going to know, you need to know what 10, 20, 30, 40 yards is. I, I for the new hunter, I wouldn't recommend a bow shooting past 40. Um, and then like rifle, you need to go set sight in your rifle, know what like the 100 to 300 yard range. If you don't have a range finder, I wouldn't recommend going past 300 with a rifle. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, you just need to get really good at guessing. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, there? sorry. I would just say, you know, enjoy it. Like it's hunting is supposed to more than anything, just be a kind of way for you to connect with you know, the outdoors and yourself a little bit. And I mean, I've had fabulous experiences by myself just out there experiencing, you know, nature and the outdoors and what, you know, my state has to offer whatever state you're in or whatever state you're visiting to. It's, it really is an enjoyable experience. So don't get so caught up on, I have to harvest an animal um, and just kind of enjoy while you're there, you know, work, work hard and do your best to get an animal. But really it's, it's just about the experience at the end. So um, don't take it for granted. Just kind of, you know, be present when you're there. The killing isn't the end all be all. It's like you said about the experience. The stuff you see out there is just incredible. You know, it's like stuff on the Nat Geo documentary. Mm -hmm. Some stuff is like you'll see a, a couple deer fighting, you know, like a couple bucks going after it or a 
say elk or you'll see some cool birds in that might you'll be like oh i might look that up see what it is <laughs> you know you just see the cool sunsets it's it's all about the experience getting to know yourself more a lot of introspection i would also say i don't think it was brought up we talked a little bit about what you do after you shoot an animal but it really the work does not start until that animal's on the ground and then just be prepared that it's that's when your work starts and don't put yourself in a bad situation, especially starting uh, shooting an animal in a bad spot. Um, there's, I mean, different animals are going to give you different challenges. Um, you're definitely not going to come out here and draw like a mountain goat tag per se. But if you, if you were to get a mountain goat tag, you know, you have to be really careful in where you're shooting those animals because you don't want to shoot an animal on a spot that you can't even get to or shoot it in a spot where, if it takes one step, it's falling off a cliff into an area you can't get to. And elk will kind of put themselves in those places sometimes. Um, so just make sure, like, it's within your physical capabilities to, uh, you know, deal with these animals after you shoot them. Because, I mean, you don't want to put something on the ground and not have it go to waste because you just weren't, you know, uh, vigilant at the time of shooting and then put yourself in a bad spot. Definitely. Yeah, like and, your safety is the most important. You know, you need to make sure you can get in and out of there safe. For sure. Yeah, the only thing I could say to add to that would just be make sure you have a good pair of boots, you know, especially if you're going to do a lot of hiking. Nothing worse than, you know, hiking two, three miles in, and then all of a sudden you get a really nasty blister, and you're having to call it a day because you just can't walk anymore. So good boots is key. And I think we've touched on that a lot, especially with our interviews the last couple of weeks break in the boots too don't get them out of the box and go straight to the field Put don't take out of the box <laughs> yeah. break them in <laughs> yeah you don't want your feet dead two miles in and realize you have two miles out of there it's your mode of transportation out of the box right? yeah 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 just just spend your time in the field spend your time outside of hunting season like just just be out there uh the more time you spend out there the more comfortable you're going to be in the more comfortable you're going to be, the better you're going to be at hunting. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's all about, you know, just being confident um, and comfortable in your abilities and kind of what you're doing. But, yeah, just just do it. Uh, there's a lot of reasons not to, uh, and there's a lot of reasons to do it, and just, just get out there and kind of go for it. There's only so much we can say, uh, and you'll, you'll find some of it true as you as you learn and experience stuff, and you'll find some different truths for yourself about where you're hunting and you know that's that's part of it it's 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 a personal experience for everyone everyone's gonna have a different experience out there and different tactics different everything so yeah you just got to get out there and learn learn how it works for you and enjoy it definitely and you might have experiences where you wonder what were those guys talking about (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe you're a perfect elk caller right out the gate and you're you're calling bulls into 40 yards and you're like these guys must just suck because this is real easy hunting that's the case our dms are wide open (laughs) (laughs) well hell yeah i think we're gonna wrap it up you guys uh really appreciate y'all listening and uh if you're enjoying the podcast if you got this far we'd really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating or any rating you feel fair fair honestly but when we those ratings really help boost up our podcast and get it out there for everyone so we really appreciate you though you guys appreciate it yeah we appreciate all you and we love to hear from you so anyone anytime you guys want to reach out we're happy to you know have a conversation or just 
if you have any questions, uh, Instagram's kind of where we're the most active, but, um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. Definitely. Yeah. And thanks for listening again. And just, you know, we always like to be able to interact with you guys and just kind of build up that camaraderie and community of hunting. Yeah. Well, we're signing off. I hope you guys have a great week. And uh, what's what's our sign off? What's our sign off today? <laughs> Get, Get out, out there, there and learn how to hunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you guys. See you, everyone. Bye.